Another year with the same co-host. I can't believe it. It's great to be here with you. It always is. Oh, you too. <laughs> I love you too. You I too. saw them in concert last year. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's just great. That's great, yeah. Hey, Dr. Esteban. Yes, how are you? I'm great. What a busy just, day we had today. It's been a very busy day. I've I seen know. a lot of you today, and I don't mean that metaphorically. No, of course not. not <laughs> actually, or, I do mean that metaphorically. Yes, right. It was literally I'd seen right. kneecaps and ankles. Carry on. Yeah. Um, so uh, we're here, Music Bits 101 and more. We would like to immediately mention that we're live streaming this mm -hmm. on the Instagram, mm -hmm. and our student co-host, Gina Willie Rejekis, is holding the phones. Gina really Rejekis, holding the phone. Gina, give us a big hello. Here. Hi, thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to be here. Okay, go, go back to holding that. Okay, so we also have Ashley Weltner, Ashley Weltner, who is German. She hasn't learned the English yet, and she is our engineer, Ashley Weltner, Ashley Weltner. Yes. For those of us listening, we also have a <laughs> right. Sorry, for those of you with your eyes closed, we also have Skylar and her mother Meg here. Skylar and her mother Meg. Yes. They're checking out the school. They're wondering, do I go to William Patterson or do I not? Oh. And the answer is, Ashley. The answer is. The answer is we use hand signals, Ashley. Yes. yes. Ashley, who is our engineer, believes that she should go to William Patterson. What do you think, Gina? That's right. Mark Robinson, our special guest. Mark Robinson, our special guest from yes. 300 Entertainment. And Mark is also our special visiting ex visiting resident expert. Visiting music and industry uh, music and <laughs> entertainment industries expert. That's so right. Visiting yeah. for the 2018 19 <laughs> the academic year. year. That's right. We both have a, and yes. we actually he yeah. dipped his feet in last week in my class. Yeah, and did very well. So the cool thing about Mark, it was two hundred ninety nine entertainment until he, he joined it. the company. It became three hundred entertainment. Ah. Then it got the hits. Three hundred entertainment. Mark I was Robinson. wondering yeah. where Lior got that name. Now I know. Yeah. Yes. Now, okay. now so thank you, Mark, for being here. Well, thanks for having me. This is the first time Mark has ever. You've been on the radio before in your life, right? Or you've never ever. This is the first time. First time, long time. Here <laughs> <laughs> we go. Okay. So he's scared to death. And um, Mark is sweating. And um, before, you, do you know the words you're not allowed to say on the radio? I do. Okay. Because I will repeat them for you. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm sure. As Ashley, the student. So you're the, um, Ashley Weldner just said, you're the program director this year, right? So she has the power to kick us off the air at any moment. Mm -hmm. Ashley Weldner does. So Good. we, uh, we want to. Stay in her good grace. And you have people to thank quickly? We have lots of people to quickly thank. Uh, we want to thank, give thanks to the good folks at Van Dyne Bruno Inc. 
and white hat management. You see, with artists like Dave Matthews, Kiss, there's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to VB. CPA.com when you are ready. And Mark, we want to give thanks to our friend Christine Vey, who is a wealth manager and president of Vey Wealth Management. Christine has helped many of our professionals, William Patterson, manage their investments, plan if they're retired. If you're looking for some guidance on how to plan for your retirement, if you have questions on anything, we're best for portal manager to insurance and retirement planning. You should give Christine a call at Mark. Please repeat after me 732 732 455 455 1510. 1510. You could also email her at Christine at Oi. Veywealth.com. Leave the last oi off for savings. That is it. <laughs> Managing your band, sixth edition, which we have not told Mother Mag or Skylar, the future student, about. Managing your band, sixth, sixth edition. We wrote it. It's been out since June 6th, year of our Lord 2017. Buy 15 copies, make us lots of money. It's also available at Amazon and Barnes and Noble and backwingstore.com right now. We should also mention, please go check out this podcast. Go to musicbiz101wp.com where you can find our newsletter, yes. where you can uh, do all the things you want to do and do them right. Yes. We're here for you. Okay. Music Biz 101. So, Mark, maybe uh, we'll start off with a little bio of how you uh, got to this radio station tonight. <laughs> you guys, you guys invited me to come. That's how I got here. Yeah. Uh, uh, just a brief history. I've, I've been in the music business for a uh, little over 20 years. I started at a small record label called Velvel Records, run by legendary Walter Yetnikoff. Who was a friend of our program for many years. And uh, fr from there, I, mo I moved over to a company called Koch that, that bought that record label. Stayed there for a while, did some huge deals from Death Row Records to the infamous William Hung from... Uh, American Idol. From American Idol. Mm -hmm. You can thank me for that. <laughs> uh, after that stint, I moved over to Warner Music Group. Uh, worked there for about 10 years. I was head of business affairs for ADA, their independent arm, Warner, Warner Nashville, uh, among other things. From there, I became general counsel for BMG. That was a most recent stint. What does that uh, mean when you say general counsel? What is... General What's counsel? the difference between that and like lawyer or whatever? The lawyers, the lawyers work from would work for me. I'd have a whole staff. Plus, I would get involved with uh, many corporate things too. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it was you know it's a big, mm -hmm. it's owned by Bertelsmann. It's a big company. There's a lot of people. It, it was a lot different than working at a small indie. Put it mm -hmm. that way. Uh, and most recently, I moved back with. Uh, 300 Entertainment, which was founded by Lior Cohn and Kevin Lyles and Todd Moskowitz and Roger Gold, all people who I work with at Warner Music Group. And uh, that's where I am now. Mm -hmm. And you favor a smaller company than a larger corporation? You know, I think there's pluses and minuses, personally. I, I enjoy being at the smaller company where I have my hands in everything, mm -hmm. as opposed to a larger corporation where you're sometimes pigeonholed in your in your job. Right. Now, who's hot at 300 Entertainment right now? Uh, we just we this week we dropped a Young Thug record. Mm -hmm. He's got a song. Uh, I mean, the whole album is great, but uh, there's a song that he did with Elton John called "High" that everybody should check out because it's it's great. Mm -hmm. uh, that really excited about that. That just came out. We've got. Uh, on the pop side, we have a, 
a, a group from New Zealand called Drax Project, uh, which we're really excited about. Uh, they have uh, songs out by Cheat Codes, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Famous Dex, T Grizzly, uh, just a whole slew of uh, artists that are that are really doing well right now. So do I think people consider 300 Entertainment primarily a hip hop label, but you guys feel it's much broader than that. It is much broader, while the majority of our hits have come from the hip-hop side, where mm-hmm. we had you know, Fetty Wap and we had Migos, uh, which were just colossal hits. We've had uh, gold and platinum records mm-hmm. on the pop side. We have uh, a country artist called Bailey Bryant. Uh, we have some rock bands, a band called Wells, uh, Highly Suspect, who have been nominated for multiple Grammys. So we're, we're we're trying to diversify, mm-hmm. but but you know right now the number one genre out there is on the hip hop side. So right. that's where we're we're all seeing you know just huge success. I was uh, with one of my classes on Tuesday, I think, and we were looking. Or was it our class on Monday? We were looking at the the global and the uh, Spotify charts. Yeah, that was our class. That was our class. So on Monday, this personal management class, and we were looking at the top fifty U.S. on Spotify and top fifty global. And we were going, we were just looking for anything beyond hip hop. Yeah, just because we just saw the trend. And of the top 50 global, and you, there's very few like straight ahead pop or non hip hop. You know, there was, uh, I can't remember the one like almost rock song that was there, but in general it was, yeah. Well, and it it's really, it's, it's, it's no longer just a US genre. It's really worldwide yeah. that we're seeing, the, seeing, seeing it take off everywhere. You know, and 300 is, Probably one of the first labels that was not built on physical product. I think uh, I don't know the exact statistic, but we're like ninety-five percent streaming. Which, mm-hmm. you know, there are other labels that are still catching up and still have the the infrastructure of having physical records and things like that. And we don't have that. We can move really quickly. You know, there there was times where uh, our A and R person found somebody on a Sunday. We signed them by Tuesday, and we had music out by by the next Friday. That quick, wow! Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's just everything's moving quick right now. Yeah. Speaking of that ratio, we brought up in class. Uh, I think it was last week that Paul McCartney was number one with his new album, and was interesting. It was one hundred and fifty thousand plus units, and one hundred and forty-two thousand of those units were actual uh, CDs, were hard hard copy sales well, you see you see where his fans are it was like 96 percent yeah it was written that, that that was the interesting part of it that there was very little streaming and very little downloads uh and who would i mean i guess i have my generation have people that still they don't know anything about spotify and so on but i just thought we just thought it was amazing that, that yeah. many hard copies were sold now on the countryside, it's like that too. I think that there's more physical being sold. Still, yeah, uh, yeah, and 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 there's been a resurgence of of vinyl too. Yeah, which uh, you know where everything else is declining. You know, streaming is through the roof. CDs are are on their way down, but vinyl is you know yeah. year over year. I think it went up like nineteen percent. Our RAAA, I think uh, last week came out and said twelve point five percent, but I so still don't have faith in it. Well, I mean, I, we're too mobile to sit in front of a a turntable. That's just it, my, you know, you know. I think the real audiophiles, the real super yeah. fans still want that. Or if you have a huge record, like when we had Migos, mm-hmm. you know, culture, and it was just a 
cultural phenomenon like we made vinyl. Right. Mm-hmm. But well, you mentioned the Country Act. What's the name of the Country uh, Act? Ba- Bailey Bryan. So is there physical for them? Uh, not yet. It's, uh-huh. it's our early stages. Oh, so you it, sign them, but they haven't had music come out yeah, yet? Yeah, correct. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Is that a band or is that a person? It's a person. One it's person. A, yeah. Men or female? Female. 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 Okay. Oh, great. When's that coming out? Uh, I'm not sure. I think they're getting ready to put up her first single. So it's going to yeah. be a minute. You know, I think country is much more methodical and takes time to get your slot in radio because mm-hmm. it's it's really all about radio. Mm-hmm. 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 So uh, I think it was last week in Billboard, you were quoted on a panel with a bunch of other people. I don't know if you were quoted or not, but since we're talking about hip hop or in classes right now, we're talking about publishing and so on. Uh, we were talking about what the article uh, was was actually um, concerned about, and that was sampling. And when you sample, of course, the the whole sort of mantra is sample once and you infringe twice because there's an underlying song that's owned by the publisher and there's also the master recording. And what uh, our class got confused, me included, was the way in which this article described the splits, what the original publisher gets and what the original master, well, the label, the master recording owner would get. So could you sort of explain yeah, in I, general? I mean, it was an interesting panel that they, they I was the, uh, the label guy. Yeah. And I was on with publishers, a producer, uh, a company called a woman named Deborah Manis Gardner who runs a clearance house yeah, where yeah. just about everybody uses her mm-hmm. and there's a couple other companies to clear samples and if if an artist takes an existing recording you know uh, let it be by the Beatles and takes that very version and and samples that that has two rights that have to get cleared the owner of the original record which is the record label. I'm not sure who it is these days, but it's, you know, would have been EMI or Apple. And then there's the words in the music, which is owned by the publisher. So if I'm the label, I have to go out and clear both rights. It's not enough to just go to one of them. So, you know, typically the, the publisher will charge a fee and take ownership of the new song. Not not full ownership, but a piece a of, it. And, of it. and depending on how much is used, you know, I've seen it everywhere from 100% taken to mm-hmm. 50% to 10. You know, it really depends on how much is used. And so they'll have an ongoing right to that song. You know, they'll, they'll collect mechanical royalties or whatever uh, publishing royalties attached to it. The record label on the other side usually asks for a fee and they will sometimes take a piece of the song on the on the record side which mm-hmm. is totally totally different right uh you know and and or sometimes they'll just do it on a flat fee you know pay us five thousand dollars or whatever it is and that and that's it mm-hmm. uh alternatively not to confuse things sometimes not the original recording will be used and an artist will replay a song and stick it in their own song and in that case, it's only the publisher side that needs to get cleared because there's no original recording being used. Like J- uh, Jay-Z had a version, like uh, Hard Knock Life took a sample 
publishing sample of Hard Knock Life from Annie for a song. It was a song called Hard Knock Life or something yeah. back in yeah. 2000 or whatever. But it wasn't from the soundtrack. It was just he had some kids come in and sing that. It's it, a hard knock. Life. Right, yeah. exactly. So that that's the case where you'd only have to clear one side. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, the original, I think it was the original suit in the 90s with, uh, was it uh, Bismarck Key or it was Alone Again Naturally that was owned by Gilbert and Sullivan. And he just sang Alone Again Naturally and certainly wasn't the melody or the track and they didn't clear it. And, and it was the first one I believe that went to court and was ruled obviously against against him. Uh, well, there was that seminal case about uh, two live crew. Yes, and then you know, and, and you know, they sang a uh, I think it was Pretty Woman. Yep. And they they made their own. They used the the same melody, but made their own lyrics. And that was a seminal case because it actually was in came down in their favor that they said it was a, a parody and mm. they didn't have to pay a cent yeah, on it. Right. But that's yeah. like, you know, that was huge right. when that happened. And, you know, I think it's much more prevalent, prevalent today, the sampling. Uh, there was a time where, you know, it didn't happen that often. Now it's, it's, I think publishers and record labels are more open to it because it's, the music is out there. It's everywhere. So, you know, why not collect on it? But there are some <clears> artists <throat> that will never, let their music be sampled. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a time where if, if a, say, a Prince sample came up, we would know that we should pull the record or pull, pull it out of the song. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, you never know until you ask, and sometimes mm -hmm. it's just about money. Now, in that same article that, that Dr. Esteban was talking about, let me read this one paragraph, because this is what, th from this panel you were on, this is what threw us, because I oh, yes, and pasted it. So, okay. so unlike with publishing, the master rights owner of the sampled material usually doesn't get to own a piece of the new copyright, but still takes a percentage of revenue from streaming and third-party licensing. Moreover, the non-recoupable non fee normally comes directly out of the new artist's own budget. Then in quotes, the artist is on the hook to give up whatever royalty they're set to receive in the recording deal to the owners of the original work that's being sampled, said this guy Cutler. Other than paying upfront advances, the record company doesn't always take a hit. Can you explain yeah, that so, deal? So, so when, when, when an artist goes in the studio, right. there's a recording budget. And if there's a sample, the, and, and a record label, when they're, the record label who's clearing the sample says, hey, you have to pay me $5,000. Right to clear this because it's because we're over budget by five thousand. No, no, no. They, they, they're say my record label goes to your record label and says, mm -hmm. "Hey, I want to use your original master." Right. And you say, "Great, you can do it for five thousand dollars flat fee." Mm -hmm. So what I would do is say, "Well, that's part of the recording budget." Mm -hmm. So I'm going to take that out of the artist's recording. Now he has less money to make. Mm -hmm. the rest of his record or sometimes there's a back end where if you don't use all the money you get to put it in your pocket mm -hmm. so that gets spent that way right so so I, as the record label i'm going to spend that money regardless mm -hmm. so whether whether i give it to you or i give it back to the artist if there's money left over it's only a problem if there's overage and you're past the budget yeah and and as far as what you're saying about the royalty you as as the owner might say yeah and i also want a five percent royalty and I would say, great. Now, I'm not going to take the hit on that. It usually comes out of the artist. So if the artist was going to get an 18% royalty, now he's going to get 
a 13% royalty. A net of 13 Net. Right. So it gets net, netted out. And that that's where, you know, the person on the panel was, he was, he was an artist lawyer. So you're saying that's not fair, right? So the it's all coming out of the artist and mm -hmm. the record label's not, not feeling it at all. Right. That's what, that's why we always say, especially in the early freshman classes, the only answer when we're talking about the recording revenue stream and getting and recording and so on, when we ask the question, who pays? And there's only one answer you do. <laughs> well, and the artist does. The, the artist does, but they pay only if we, if the record right. label recoups. We, we, we always say that. Yeah. So, so, you know, right. all the risk. 99 coming, out of 100, too, won't. Right. So I don't know what the statistic is, but, you know, eight, eight out of 10. Or more. Yeah. Or don't more. Re don't don't, recoup. don't yeah. recoup. So, yeah. But maybe those two will recoup for everything. So is this worded incorrectly? Because it says, moreover, the non-recoupable fee normally comes directly out of the new artist's own budget. No, that's right. Why is it saying non-recoupable? Yeah, because why non it's non-recoupable non to your royalty, to the rec to the your mm. your record label gets the five thousand dollar fee, right. and it's not going to be recouped against that royalty. I'm oh, going to pay you five thousand. But as far as recouping it from the artist, it would still get recouped from the mm. artist as a recording cost. Yeah. Okay. Okay, that's a little clearer. Yeah, I, you know, yeah. but yeah, I was I was uh, surrounded by <laughs> by publishers and right. uh, pro artists. So, how did you feel then, as the label guy? Because you just said that the uh, person was the artist attorney who who felt that the labels um, weren't offering enough. You know, where it was all on the artist. Well, so, I, from I, your perspective, from my perspective, is that you know we're not putting the samples in. Mm -hmm. So, so it's, they don't have to put it. It's their decision to do it, that. It, exactly, and I'm also okay. the one taking the risk and in, in, in spending the money to to have to clear it. And the first person so, invested in the artist. Exactly. So, so I, no, I I didn't get this. I got talked over a little bit on the panel, but it was, <laughs> but it but it was you know it was a good good group of. Uh, so whose media. responsibility it is to, they deliver the master. I say the producer delivers the master to the label, and he says there's three samples in there. And there's really twelve. Whose whose responsibility is that to tell you the truth? Let's put it that way, because well, I'm sure you, you can't know, put it out. Ultimately, the label's on the hook if we put it out with a sample, because we're the ones that are going to get get a cease and desist or get sued. Uh, we typically will listen to a record, regardless, <clears throat> and. If we hear a sample, we'll go back to the producer and say, hey, what about this? What about that? And if they still say there's nothing and we believe there is, we'll send it out to a musicologist who will really mm -hmm. analyze the whole song and and tell us. Mm -hmm. They're remarkable, these guys. Yeah. And uh, then we have a decision. If mm -hmm. either we can try to clear it, mm -hmm. have the artist or the producer take out the sample or not release the song. You know, and, and there's been times where we have tried to clear things and couldn't get it cleared. It just, mm -hmm. you know, it was a case of, you know, it wasn't Prince, but it was something like that where uh, the other side just refused and we we had to, you know, scrap it. Mm -hmm. what, now, say, what do you do in the case of when the artist might release it on the street anyway or put it up on SoundCloud anyway? Uh, I'm sure that that must have happened. It it does happen, and it's a bit of a bit of the wild west out there. Mm -hmm. And you know, it happens more times than it it should. Mm -hmm. it, it really depends if it if it's a situation where we have been involved, 
you know, there's times where artists just put things up. Right. And, uh, and, and sometimes that's okay, you know, uh, you know, depending where they put it, just to keep them, keep them out there. But mm -hmm. if we were involved in some, and then it goes up, we have, we have a duty to, to pull it down, you know, and, and there's companies that, that we use and a lot of the other record companies use that basically can go out and search and destroy and, and just get things down off. It's a little bit of whack-a-mole, but there are companies that, that mm -hmm. can do it. Mm -hmm. But Right. Now, with a copyright, there's usually, well, if we were thinking about a country record, there would usually be a lyricist and, so, and a composer, and that the copyright would be split, the songwriting side would be split between those two people. Now, when hip-hop came in, of course, more and more names came up as people who contributed to the song, so they became part of composer or lyricist on the song, and then many of them have their own publishers, so there would be almost a, a um, I don't know, a, a, a oh. big body of of people in a big body of, of yeah, publishers. It's, it, it, it's, so what's what's basically fairly common in the hip hop world? I mean, there, there's typically several writers involved. Mm -hmm. I don't know if everybody's written on it, but you know, you know, 300 has a has a publishing arm also, and and we're uh, actively signing publishing. And on the hip hip hop side, you know, these songs have they could have. 10, you know, I, I, the other day I gave an example of the song Uptown Funk, and mm -hmm. I think there were 15 different writers on it, mm -hmm. you know, and that, that's a, uh, because, because there were different writers, plus there were some samples that were cleared, so those original writers also get a credit, and it just gets bigger and bigger. I mean, the, the biggest issue is that it, it gets difficult to clear if you want to yeah. put it in a movie or something, and you have to get writer approval or things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, like you said, on the, on the, uh, countryside, it's a it's a different world. The publishers play a much bigger role where there's publishing houses and they're plugging songs like sort of like the old days. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know they would give whoever Blake Shelton a song, and he might have a small piece of publishing on it because he he's singing it. But the majority, it's the the, the publishers in Nashville are very powerful and uh, they have the hits. Mm. Now for our listeners too on. When a song is played on terrestrial radio, they're actually artists, if they did not write the song, they don't earn any money on the spins of the, of the, of the recording, if it's on Z100 or whatever. Only the writers and the, the publisher basically takes part in that. Um, so would or does it happen that on some occasions that if a unknown songwriter or songwriters want to uh well someone famous wants to record this song but it's unknown songwriter then the someone famous or their people might go in and ask for a piece of the composer side so that they make money on every spin yeah absolutely mm -hmm. especially if it's a superstar act and you know it's it's some of its leverage, but if you're an unknown writer and you could get whoever the biggest artist in the world to sing your song, and it uh, it happens all the time, you know, right. I, you know, I don't I don't know how much they would take, but you know, it could be right. anywhere from ten to fifteen percent of the song. Right. It might be high, it might be even higher. Yeah, 
So they, even though they didn't write a note, but, but what we learn and what we teach in class or what we've learned from the songwriting uh, faculty is that they go to these, especially with pop, they go to these sort of cattle calls like in LA and they might be top liners or they might be people that write rhythms and so on, but there's a room full of these people and over the weekend there's sort of- Yeah, they have writing camps. Writing camps and then the artists will come through and say that and that and that and they get sometimes just a fee and the artist takes the whole songwriting they say or sometimes if they're lucky they're gonna at least hold the the part of it so the name is out and on the recording itself mm -hmm. yeah i mean i'm not that involved in that area right but you know when i was at bmg you know, we'd, we'd have writing camps all the time and uh great songs would come out of it and then they then we would try to get big artists to come in and, and actually record it and mm -hmm. for that it might be worth giving up a, a big chunk of the, of the publishing because it, it gets that writer's name out there and, and then it's really about the next song. Right, because we always say 100% of nothing is... Nothing, Dr. Esteban yes. Marconi. Gina should read a tweet at this point good. in the show. So Gina. Hi. Hey Gina, good to have you here on Music Biz 101 and more. So you're on the board of A2IM, and they help independent labels improve business by promoting access and parity through advocacy, education, and connection building with one another and affiliated businesses. So how did you get involved, and how does this help 300 Entertainment? Well, you know, A A2IM is the uh, it's a group for all the independent labels, and I thought it was important as being in that community to be part of that organization and 300 as one of the leading independents, it was important that we had a seat at the table. So uh, I tried for a couple of years when I was at BMG, which is technically an indie also, and, mm -hmm. and, and I didn't get enough votes, but mm -hmm. I, I guess I have a little bit more juice now being with 300. Uh, so uh, it's, How does it's, it help 300? Like, what, what does it do for your company for you to be on the board? Well, I mean, it's early days. I, ju I just I just started my uh, period on the board. It's it's been less than uh, maybe it's been two months, mm -hmm. but uh, but I think I think it's it gives us a, a voice and it gives us a different perspective too because, you know. I came. I worked at a major for a long time. The guys that that run run the company, uh, were, from from the major label systems, whether it be Universal and and Warner, and. Uh, they have very strong relationships. So, you know, I, I think there's there's a lot of disparity out there where the majors can walk into Spotify and get great placement and things like that. And, you know, we at 300, we look at it as that it's all about relationships and we, we don't depend on our distributor to go do this for us, that we have to have that relationship. And I think, uh, I'm, I know I'm going a little sideways here, but, but I think, having that voice at, at, at A2IM and sitting with the other independent labels and hear what, hear the things that, that trouble them and, and uh, we can help them. We hear things from them that they can help us. And, uh, you know, mm -hmm. but it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a great organization. It's just growing, uh, you know, every year. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. And for you personally, it's great for networking. I mean, you mentioned you're at 300 because you knew the guy you had worked 
with yeah. Kevin Lyles and, and Lior before. Yes, yes. And what's so. interesting for me is that when I was head of business affairs at ADA, which is the independent arm of Warner, many, many of the labels that are in A2IM, I was the guy on the other side. So now, mm -hmm. I'm, now I'm sitting at the table with them and, you know, uh, I know there's a few guys out there that, that, you know, I don't know if they're fond of me or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe they'll, they'll forgive you for your past yes. sins. Um, we have, I'm looking for actually Gina sent a tweet in this morning and she's now going to read it that I thought was really good because she did some good research on, on your background oh, no. and found some <laughs> of the illegalities that you, uh, no, she found something about the Cox Communications thing, so which we should get into. So, um, yeah. So my question: um, the Cox Communications um, case obviously was a victory during your time at BMG, but mm -hmm. um, on the other side of that, has that ever negatively impacted you and your relationships in the industry or um, the team that was behind you on that case? No, I, I mean that was a huge case. It was the first time that anybody fought. A, uh, you know, a company that, that hid behind the, the safe harbor for illegal downloading. Mm. And uh, can you explain, sa explain safe harbor too? Sa safe harbor is that, you know, companies like Cox who are internet providers, they have, they have certain protection where if their users are doing illegal file sharing and things like that, that they have protection that, that they can't be sued. Mm -hmm. But under the copyright law, what the, the, what we did at BMG is that there's certain things you have to have in place for that to apply. Nobody's ever really challenged that. So Cox had some things in place, but it was, you know, I, I don't have the, the stats in front of me, but it was something like, you know, if, if you were found to be infringer 12 times, then they would turn you off for a day and then turn you back on, mm -hmm. you know, and that's not what, what was the intent. It was, uh, there had to be some rules in effect and, you know, so the court found that Cox was particularly egregious, their actions, uh, some of the, the emails and things, and this is all public, so anybody could look it up, but it was just unbelievable. You know, I can't say some of the words because they're on the wall over here, but they were <laughs> like, you know, the hell with the DMCA, mm -hmm. uh, these are paying customers, we're not going to turn them down, wink, wink, and... Uh, and they lost the case, and, it, and it, this is going to be one of those cases that, uh, like Napster and Grokster, and this is a huge case. And all, all I've gotten from this is our accolades, where the rest of the industry has has said, hey, you know, way to go, guys. And you know, BMG, uh, my partner there was uh, Keith Halpridge, who's now general counsel at BMG, and he really led the fight on this, and. It, it, it was just a huge, huge case. And now the RIAA has joined in. And at the time, we, we, were, we were rogue. We were out there. Nobody would, would come in, whether it be the NMPA or RIAA. We reached out to them to get some muscle, and we did it on our own. And now the RIAA is, is in there using the law that we helped create. Mm. And they're going after these guys. And I think it's going to have a little bit of a chilling effect on these companies that look the other way. We'll say, you know, and this, this, this isn't just for the music business It's for the, you know, for the movie business, for, uh, you know, anybody that, that has, uh, IP out there. So how mm -hmm. different is this from the, there was the big lawsuit between Viacom and I think it was Google back in the very early two thousands, very similar thing about safe Harbor where Viacom kept suing Google and they kept losing 
because people kept because uh, Google owns YouTube and uh, people kept uploading uh, like SpongeBob SquarePants uh, and it put episodes and portions of that up onto YouTube and Viacom kept saying you are infringing on our copyright and uh, Google slash YouTube wouldn't pull it down. So then they sued and they lost and they sued and they lost. They ultimately settled and I don't know. But do you know the suit that I'm talking about? I do. You know, I'm not well versed in it, but right. uh, I would have to assume that the safe harbor under the copyright act probably right. kicked in where they had certain certain uh, safety nets that were in there that if you had a repeat infringer, that they would turn that person off. And uh, but they weren't going to just blanket take it all down. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's interesting. It's a, it's a seminal case and proud of it, proud of proud of what my team did on this. And uh, I'll be long gone. That'll be my legacy, you know? Can I ask a follow-up question? Please do. Not reading from a tweet, so I'm just going rogue here. It was crazy. Um, so um, you said after the case, everyone in the music industry was like patting you on the back, but um, you said that BMG, you guys were kind of alone in it and you were reaching out for help, but no one was really stepping up. If everyone, if it was such a big issue that affected so many in the music industry, why were, why was BMG and your team alone in this fight? I, I mean, that's a good question. I, you know, some of it was we had very good facts on our side. It was very specific. We, we had the perfect storm here. Uh, and, it, I, I, you know, I think that, that some of the bigger companies do business, do a lot of business with these uh, communication companies and, you know, uh, probably were not looking to, to sue them. Um, but you know, we were a small, smaller, smaller group. The facts look at, look right. We found a law firm that that joined us in on it, and uh, you know, we kind of weighed out the risk and we went for it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Read this next tweet, okay. Gina. So, have there been cases where you signed an artist and then found out after the fact that you had to deal with other deals or contracts the artist made prior to your arrangements? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> there was there was a time on on a Christmas Eve when I first started at Warner Music Group, we signed Little Wayne. It was, and this is dating myself, but sitting there by the fax machine on Christmas Eve, waiting for that click sound for the signed piece of paper to come through. The signed piece of paper came through. We pushed the button. We we wired a lot of money to to uh, to oh, Little Wayne's people and. We all went out on our break and we came back and we got a phone call that Lil Wayne's still signed to cash money. <laughs> so we ended, we ended up working it out where uh, Warner ended up keeping the publishing. Uh. But it was interesting and it, it's ha it, it happens. You know, uh, sometimes people sign deals and, you know, then the next deal comes and they sign it and don't really understand the ramifications of... Uh, you know, a legal document. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have a uh, sort of a, well, it's not a question, but when you were in class last week, you touched on something that I always bring up. And many times when they talk about copyright law, they don't bring it up anymore. And that was the main purpose that the our founding fathers in the Constitution said, quote, to promote the progress of science and useful arts, we're giving the originator, the composer, and so on, for a limited time. 
the reaping of the harvest of this. And I always thought that that limiting time, of course, was whatever, and the first one was 28 years plus one renewal, and then it was up in public domain. Now we have almost worldwide 70 years past the last author's life. And for someone like Keith Richards or Nick, they're putting their grandchildren on the writing so they get an additional, you know, because Keith, is Keith still alive? I don't even know. But if, if uh, Keith would die tonight, his grandson or yeah. whatever on there would keep it. Now, my feeling is that this has lost the original intent of the founding fathers in the Constitution, that for a limited time, they didn't mean that this was going to be now, well, just look at this, if the kid's two years old, it's beyond another 72 years that it's still going to be in the family and passed down and so on and so forth. Not even counting if they do a revision and, and so on and so forth, like Stravinsky used to do. Do you feel that the that this original intent is still there with the 70 years plus? Well, you know, this is my own personal opinion on this, is that, uh, you know, if I create something, why, why should it ever go back into the public domain, right? Uh, but the but the original founding fathers told you why, basically. Right, but <laughs> but the original founding fathers couldn't have imagined Spotify being here, or or, or well, just the world that we live in now is just much different. You know, it, it was about probably sheet uh, piano rolls and maybe sheet music right. at that point. So then why put in on the duration? Then don't even don't put a number. Yeah, I, you know, it's a good question. Uh, <laughs> I know. Um, we have a good friend who is still a good friend of mine. He's a music copyright um, expert used in a lot of cases. Uh, Michael Harrington's his name. And he um, agrees with me that, because he sits with the copyright law all day long. And he, he agrees with me that this is the original intent. It's gone. And when I went to the copyright um, website, the U.S. copyright website, I don't, I don't think I found it when I... They sort of, re he told me they've removed that, that sentence, and it's not there anymore. So anyway, it's just a sidebar. That's something I always bring up in I'll class. Take, it wasn't, it, well, it wasn't for your grandchildren to be rich too. The idea was at some point, everybody was going to have access to like a creative commons was going to be able to go in there and. But I wonder if at the, the at the time that. They, they thought that there was that much money being oh, earned sure, from it, you know, not. So it was, yeah. you know, uh, where now it's I mean, such a bad look. Look at, you know, Warner Chapel had the song Happy Birthday. Yeah. I mean, how, right. cra how crazy is that? You know, yeah. it's still, yeah, a uh, hundred years after it was written or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But even um, in the drug industry, like the copyright for music is much better than the drug industry in mm -hmm. that the Viagra for example, mm. was created and they had, I think it's like seven year exclusive and then it, it, it becomes sort of public domain and knock on. Right, and then right. people can put out the generic, but it, yeah. But I guess, I don't know, is it art versus like medicine, you know, mm -hmm. not Viagra side, but right. you know, uh, <laughs> whatever. I, I, I don't know, you know, where, you have to weigh out what's what's best, you know, for the, the good of the public and, and things like that. So, I, you know, I, I look at it much differently than, than mm -hmm. art. What's interesting because we're talking about commerce because the founding fathers, like one of the six 
bundle rights, of rights? Uh, bundle of rights. Okay. I just lost my train of thought. Come on. Yeah. You may get it back. Scratched in itch. Yeah, yeah. So I got a question for you. What is there a part <laughs> of the copyright law from where you sit now as label and publisher that you think is very unfair, whether it be for one side or the other? Well, I mean, up until most recently, the you know publishers versus the record labels, uh, there's there's been a huge difference where. You know, the record labels would get paid much more than the publishers. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that had to do with that the publishers were subject to what's called the consent decree, yep. which is a very old law, and that would dictate what what they would be paid from these companies. Mm -hmm. And and just recently, the M Music Modernization Act, I think it's... It, you know, it passed the house today. He's got to sign it. Yeah, the president has to sign it, but but that's gonna that's gonna change things for publishers and make things a bit more even handedly and not be dictated by the these uh, copyright boards, but instead it would be the, the uh, willing buyer, willing seller, so that so they can compete on the open market of of what uh, what is fair. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's 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 a huge huge change that that's going to undergo that we're going to see. Yeah, uh, but up until up until now, you know that that's something that that really needed to be changed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm still upset about the Music Modernization Act because uh, terrestrial radio still isn't paying performers, isn't paying the uh, artists that we're listening to the yeah. way uh, Sirius XM has to or iHeart Online has to. That's to me a huge hole that I think radio did a really good job of. Uh, of t the lobbying, yeah, I mean, think, keeping that out think of about the, years. Think yeah. about the the money that's involved with the lobbyists and yeah. things like yeah. that. You know, as a record label, we don't get paid when it's on 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 the radio. Yeah, yeah I mean, you guys right. would be yeah. how much more money would you guys get? We, we would yeah. be doing backflips. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, and and we're we're spending all that money to market the records. Mm -hmm. You know, and right. it's it's we spend millions of dollars. Right, right. And you know, it was that, that old fight from the beginning, radio needed something to fill the 24 hours so the record companies even in the 20s gave them music for free so now they're saying you want us to pay when we're giving you all this free publicity and uh, through the bushes era anyway clear channel was a texas company there was no chance that it was going to change during those years and even clinton had made a mistake uh prior to that uh with sort of ignoring it or favoring the the uh, terrestrial radio, you know, the big conglomerates. Yeah. 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 And, and look, you know, there is something to be said that when something gets played on the radio, it would, it, set, it, it sells records, it makes people aware. But, you know, a lot of focus now is not all on the streaming, on the playlists mm -hmm. and things like that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so I think there's a, a, a bit of a shift. Mm -hmm. and, and we're all feeling it right now when, and, in a good way yeah, with, with the growth that's going on but but radio is still super important and uh it's just you know the economics are right. what they are right any comment on the serious pandora deal uh all kind of fresh uh mm. it's it's probably you know it's probably a good thing i think the more the more the more that's that's out there for uh consumers and for the industry i think is better yeah, a couple kids in one of my classes was saying, isn't that a monopoly now? 
And I was trying to explain. Yes. You think so? Well, I think that there's nothing else for the car market's a monopoly. Well, they, well right. And, and, and if they have they the cars, right? So more. so now all of a sudden it's this that's built into the car shit. That's, you know, that's how they got mm -hmm. all the things. But, you know, we'll see. Right. Well, Spotify could get in the cars. Yeah, you know, um, anybody could get in the cars. You know, it's just they, they have the car market because they have the deal. It's not yeah. like that's the only choice. That, I'm sure um, at some point we'll, we'll, as this becomes all mainstream mm -hmm. and that's how people consume music, that you'll, you'll have a choice. It won't just mm -hmm. be one, you know, they were just the first in. Right. So it'll probably take a minute. Right. Okay. Yeah, because the reason I was considering it not a monopoly is because we had satellite and then you had online, but it wasn't terrestrial. It wasn't free. The, the monopoly to me would be if, oh, I sent you that article. So Liberty Media, right. which is a, an owner of Sirius XM of 30 something percent. Mm -hmm. Now they're going to be a, and they already owned a portion of uh, Pandora. Right. They own a portion of Live Nation too. Yep. Yep. So um, the, the question is, suppose they bought, and I was talking to the class, suppose they bought iHeart. Um, now you're, I think you'd be talking about some sort of monopoly because they're, they're owning satellite, they're owning the biggest collection of terrestrial radio, plus they own the biggest online radio, which would be Pandora. Would you consider that? And you would know this better than me just because of your law background. Is that getting into monopolistic practices there? Uh Maybe it's yeah. hypothetical. You know, I, yeah, it's yeah. hard for me to, to answer, you know, uh, but it, it feels like it's getting closer to that, right? Mm -hmm. But look at like Madison Square Garden; they they own they own concerts, they own tickets, they own all that kind of stuff. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I I I don't know, but uh, I guess we'll see. <laughs> yeah. It's just yeah. a uh, it's just a byproduct of the stock market doing so well that these companies have a lot of cash on hand now and that they are able to buy the maybe the little weaker companies because we're seeing you know uh who bought sky the uh the uh, comcast yeah comcast bought sky the other day and then uh, the pandora thing and so i mean we're seeing almost one a week yeah shazam uh, is part of she, apple yeah, now that went through yeah, apple yeah, shazam yeah. And apple, right and Apple has more cash than anybody, I guess, except for Amazon. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So. They can buy America. Maybe they uh, will. <laughs> <laughs> That's next, the United States of Amazon. Do you want to read one more tweet? Yeah. Gina Rejekis? That word's independent. Okay. Here's the tweet. With the advent and subsequent surge of the internet, musicians of all levels have been taking their careers into their own hands. Where do you see the music business headed for independent artists over the next 10 years? You know, it's a, it's a good question. I, I still think that artists need labels. Uh, we do a tremendous amount of marketing and we, we open doors. Uh, that, that's to say that there will be outliers out there, the Chance the Rappers of the world, uh, you know, has built up his, his, his following so big that, you know, he basically got to the point where when he released his record, he didn't, he didn't need uh, a record label. But, you know, I think I told the story once that Macklemore is out there. To, you know, he, he's independent, turned down eight record deals and this and that. But I did a deal for Macklemore. And his song was on the radio because Warner Brothers worked it. So, you know, I, I still think that there's, there is a place. Well, there better be us. I'll be out of work. Mm -hmm. But 
for the for the record label and the things that we do and and i think that that sure artists can go on soundcloud and 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 have their followers but they reach a a, a critical point where money needs to be infused to get mm. them to that next level to mm. get them to be a headliner to or 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 on the radio or what have you and uh i can't say it would never happen because it has happened but i think it's few and far between unless you know it's about the music too. If an artist has a smash hit that just stands up by itself, you know, mm. in this day and age, you know, there used to be a time where uh, distribution was the barrier of entry and that's gone. Yeah. So now, look, anybody in this room could go to a company called Audio Salad and pay whatever and put their, put their music up. And there's lots of companies that do that and they mm -hmm. charge you, you know, 10 bucks or, or mm -hmm. whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But who's going to go listen to it? Right. It's, it's, you know, it, you can put it on, on Spotify, but unless people know it's there, uh, you know, it's, it's a, uh, you know, that's yeah. what. It, I mean, we, we always talk about too, this ratio. Now it's, are you getting one person to stream it 2000 times or you're getting 2000 people to stream it once? to get that number up. And that's the, that's the name of the game. And the independent person, especially the little one, certainly has to try to work one at a time, but, but it's, it's, it's some battle yeah, to get up to Drake's numbers and so on. And, and the way that, that music's discovered, at least by the, the record labels, you know, there's, there's still the uh, people are out there listening to bands and stuff, but, but a lot of it's quantitative, uh, analytical, looking at numbers, looking yep. at followers, look at how many streams and things like that. So mm -hmm. it's... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, exactly. We need to wrap everything up. Oh. It's just getting going. I here. know. We thought it was a four-hour show tonight, but it's been cut, unfortunately, down. And what the... did our friends from Chicago think? Yes, what did our friends from Chicago think? Meg, the mom, do you want... Yes, I mean, Meg, Meg liked like it. She... Yeah. Meg look like she Learned wants to enroll next fall. That's right. So Skylar, who's going to be a uh, freshman next year, and her mother are both going to move to Wayne, New Jersey, and right. uh, enroll. That's, that's excellent. <laughs> so thank you for being here, you two. Uh, we should thank Bono, The Edge, Larry Mullen Jr., and Adam Clayton for being you two. And then we should thank Ashley Veltner for being in The Engineers. Yes. Yes. She's the dearest engineerist. We should thank Gina Willie Rejekis for reading the tweets and going rogue. Yes. Should we we should say Ashley's that serious now, isn't it? That's intern. right. That's right. How is mm -hmm. your internship going well? You have no mic, so I'm, well, I'm sure it's going fine. Are you talking anything about have... Pandora to, uh, over there? A little bit? Yeah, yeah, okay. And then next week, we have Cindy De Silva from the Rocks Management. Oh, you cheated. You actually looked. Huh? I, I, I looked this time. And then on October 10th, Amy Cierretto. I should roll my R's. Amy Cerreto from Adam Splitter PR. Yeah, that'll be, be interesting. And then your your friend will be here on October 17th, George. George. Oh, George Gilbert. Yes. Okay, yes. I was going to say George Mitchell, huh? but he used to be a senator from the great <laughs> state of not New Jersey. So uh, we should thank Mark. You want to be thanked, Mark? You want to sure. be thanked? Pat on the back for Mark Rock. Yes, very good. Very Pat interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, very, very good to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, Mark will be here every Wednesday for the next four and we years. Won't. Uh, <laughs> That's right. As Mark is taking over. He doesn't realize and he's doing it for free. So thank you again for that, Mark. <laughs> but uh, so, Dr. Stabon. Yes. Thank you so much for being here tonight. And uh, what does the Cindy da Salva do? 
She's that a you manager would want to listen. Management. And she has what groups? The Zombies. Classic the Zombies. Rock. Wow. Pre-1972 music. So when we talk Music Modernization Act, we're going to talk about that with Cindy DeSilva because the, the Zombies were pre-1972. Right. Interesting. There we go. Yeah. So like I said, Mark, we'll be back next week. <laughs> and uh, so, Dr. Stavon, thank you very much. Well, thank you, my co-host, Professor Phil. And that is I. And thank you very much for being here at the end of every show. We do not say hello. Uh -oh. That would be silly, Megan. That would be just crazy silly. So you know what we do? We do at the every end of every show. At the count of three, you're going to say adios with me. One, two, three. Adios!